This time on the Starving Art Podcast, Susan Sontag stares down her own cancer diagnosis, writing a searing pair of essays on the language of and around illness. Lifting up her story, digging into the power duo of illness as metaphor and AIDS and its metaphors, and drawing out some lessons to help us through the COVID crisis. If you haven't already, subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts. Ratings and reviews help this work get seen, so if you like what you hear, please take a minute to help spread the word. The work of modern medicine has contributed to an incredible increase in the quality of human life, a dizzying defiance of death unlike any other species on Earth. The advent of new medical treatments, vaccines, and cures in the modern era have made death and dying an out-of-sight, out-of-mind experience. Moving from the home and into the hospital rooms, we've experienced a massive change in the way that we perceive the process of being sick. Although everyone is obliged to experience illness, the absence of direct experience with the sick and dying makes the experience all the more abstract and terrifying. Unable to look plainly at the kingdom of the sick, our ideas about what it means to be sick can run wild. It took an artist at the top of her career to pierce the layers of problematic thinking and describe the ways our conceptions around illness can be harmful to the sick. Susan Sontag's aim in penning the essay Illness as Metaphor was in many ways an exercise in clarity. Until we can own our citizenship in the League of the Sick, which we are all obliged to be a member of at one time or another, we can't deal with the tragedy of illness and death effectively or elegantly. Sontag declares in her opening lines that, quote, I want to describe not what it is really like to emigrate to the kingdom of the ill and live there, but the punitive or sentimental fantasies concocted about that situation. Not real geography, but stereotypes of national character. My subject is not physical illness itself, but the uses of illness as a figure or metaphor. My point is that illness is not a metaphor, and that the most truthful way of regarding illness and the healthiest way of being ill is one most purified, most resistant to metaphoric thinking. End quote. Sontag's motivations for writing this essay were intensely personal. In 1974, she was diagnosed with stage 4 breast cancer and told that there was nothing to be done for her situation. Fiercely defiant, she rejected the notion that death was inevitable and began seeking out experimental treatments. She was given hope by a French oncologist, tracked down by her lover, who weakly implied that her cancer could be treatable. Sontag was relentless in her desire to live, undergoing harsh chemotherapy treatment and a mastectomy that also removed her chest muscles and lymph nodes. In the end, however, she overcame her fatal diagnosis and was declared in remission in 1978. Throughout her three-and-a-half-year battle with breast cancer, she was formulating the theories and literary backup she would need to write illness as metaphor, a rejection of the romanticism or vitriol around different illnesses, and a plea to treat it for what it is, a fact of human life. 
In the follow-up essay written in 1994, AIDS and Its Metaphors, she elaborates on her reasons for writing her original tract against the abstraction of illness. Her central conceit in writing illness is that the abstraction of illness does damage to sick individuals. The use of illness to describe society and the myths around the reasons behind illness both create impressions that become barriers to seeking treatment. As Sontag writes, quote, Many fellow patients with whom I talked to during my initial hospitalizations evinced disgust at their disease and a kind of shame. They seemed to be in the grip of fantasies about their illness by which I was quite unseduced, end quote. By repeating cultural narratives about and around illness, we can often fall prey to a false equivalency between the stigma and the illness itself. The feelings of shame and disgust that Sontag describes can run deeply and discourage patients from getting care or convince them to seek care where it isn't helpful. Sontag's point in writing her essay was to free the already afflicted from their secondary battle against biased notions of what disease is or who sick people are. Sontag's indomitable spirit rose to the task of alleviating her fellow cancer sufferers from their personal battles with the ways that their illness was manipulated to say something about who they were as people or who we were as a people. As she says, quote, I didn't think it would be useful and I wanted it to be useful, to tell yet one more story in the first person of how someone learned that she or he had cancer, wept, struggled, was comforted, suffered, took courage, though mine was also that story. Illness as metaphor is not just a polemic, it is an exhortation. I was saying, get the doctors to tell you the truth, be an informed, active patient, Find yourself good treatment, because good treatment does exist, although the remedy does not exist. End quote. Sontag is insistent that rather than take on the burdensome load of societal stigma around illness, we must regard it, quote, as if it were just a disease, not a curse, not a punishment, not an embarrassment, without meaning. Sontag took a sweeping view of the literary landscape to discern the pitfalls around illness as such. Focusing mainly on tuberculosis and cancer, she dissects the complex discourse of disease in personal narratives, interpersonal relationships, and cultural views. On a personal level, being diagnosed with a disease can create all sorts of reactions in your life. Sontag described the turmoil that a cancer diagnosis created in the patients she interacted with, but we also deal with the ways that others react to our diagnosis. The fear and stigma surrounding the ill is a prevalent point in AIDS and its metaphors, and shows how the narrative around disease transmission can create a shunning effect on those who are sick instead of providing the care they need. On an even broader level, public discourse frequently makes use of illness to spice up a speech, turning an illness into a talking point. Politicians and thinkers frequently compare society to a body, and political movements make use of illness imagery to rally support behind their ideas. These overlapping levels of conversation about and around disease can contribute to the fight against disease or create barriers to treatment. The biggest danger, really, is that the disease becomes abstracted to the point where we are unable to deal with it in concrete terms. 
At that point, we become susceptible to quack treatments, self-defeating thought patterns, and an inability to reckon with the tragic reality of sickness and death. One of the most prevalent myths about disease is that one's disease is intimately connected to who they are as a person. Whether it is the revelation of one's internal state of being or the impetus for drastic change, certain diseases function in literature and the public imagination as a personal battle of will against an invasive intruder. Sontag identifies cancer as a disease which is often portrayed through this lens. It has a stigma of repression. That is, the people who stuff down their tragedies and troubles are condemning themselves to an inner festering that manifests itself in the disease. Walter White from Breaking Bad is a perfect example of this image of cancer sufferers. A mild-mannered high school science teacher, trapped in an underwhelming job, taking shit from everyone in his life and keeping it all buried deep inside. His cancer diagnosis seems to reflect his inability to express his real feelings or to take his own path. His turn into drug dealing, ostensibly to provide his family wealth before he dies, frees him from the repressive constraints he used to hold as sacred and enabled him to express a violent, dark side of his personality. This expression of self seems to free him from disease as he is, spoiler alert, declared in remission later on in the series. Many movies or books are motivated by the diagnosis with a fatal disease, and it frequently spurs a moral reckoning or a balancing of the scales. Awakened to their mortality, the hero valiantly tries to make amends and leave the world better than they found it. An atheistic update to the idea of illness as divine punishment, the idea that disease expresses the character of a person also creates the idea that the mental and physical battle with disease are one and the same. The profile of a cancer patient has varied wildly across time and culture, but ultimately any attempt to categorize who gets cancer will fall short. Treating the disease as a mental battle also falls short, as psycho-spiritual confrontations fall short of physical cures for a physical illness. Sontag writes that, quote, psychologizing seems to provide control over grave illnesses, which people have in fact little to no control of. For those who live neither with religious consolations about death, nor with a sense of death or of anything else, as natural, death is the obscene mystery, the ultimate affront, the thing that cannot be controlled, it can only be denied, end quote. Many a sick person has fallen prey to the idea that their mental battles are the root of their disease and it prevents them from getting the treatment that they need, preferring to spend time in contemplation of their own tribulations and shortcomings. The need to ascribe meaning or cause to a disease we don't understand is a fool's errand, but the inability for a sick person to cope with their illness as just a fact of life leads to the tempting belief that their cure or death depends on their character or their inability to reconcile themselves to the life they lead. While the internal battle around dealing with illness is a complicating factor, the response in the community is overlaid onto that as well. Positive or negative, branding an illness fashionable or shameful is a method of abstraction that can obscure the actual course and casualties of a disease. For example, tuberculosis. 
a historical killer but almost unknown in developed countries, tuberculosis, or TB, was branded in the 1800s as the illness of the romantic, overly expressive soul. Many famous artists of the Romantic era were consumptive, a slang phrase for those infected with TB, such as Chopin and Thoreau. The culture of the Romantic period seized on these famous examples to imagine those passionate and wild men as the type to get TB. The public image began to idealize the disease, imbuing sufferers with perceived qualities of refinement or distinction. TB was thought to grant a few years of manic genius in exchange for an eventual madness that would set in as a result of the progression of the disease. The limited amount of time that the disease granted invoked a similar narrative to that of the cancer patient, allowing the sick to express their desires and passions freely. The way that TB whittled away at those afflicted gave the impression that death from TB was gentle and granted time to come to peace with death, despite the counterexamples of those who suffered greatly before dying of TB. TB was seen as an illness that could elevate the status of anyone infected with it. The pale, emaciated bodies of TB sufferers became subsumed into the style of the era, presenting slight women as the fashionable body type. This trend became cemented into the fashion industry and can be seen operating in our cultural beauty standards to this day. There are many examples in Sontag's essay about people clamoring to contract TB so as to become greater than who they were. Sontag quotes Lord Byron, who said, quote, I should like to die of a consumption. Why? asked a friend. Because the ladies would all say, look at that poor Byron, how interesting he looks in dying. End quote. Now that's bad enough as an idea, but the communal notions of TB also influenced the treatments prescribed to those who were sick with it. The biggest trend in disease treatment before the development of germ theory was called the miasma theory, which essentially said that disease was caused by bad or polluted air. Therefore, a removal from the city and into fresh open air was widely considered helpful for the consumptive. The medical professionals of the day couldn't agree where was best, and the opinions of what kind of air one should get varied wildly, but the moralistic view of cities as breeding grounds for disease and vice created a stigma that resonates to this day. Even in the absence of cures or effective treatments, many of the counterfactual claims about what could cure TB were continued long into the 20th century, even as the facts of TB and the theories of transmission became more clear. The cultural understanding of TB had developed a life of its own, completely separated from the medical interpretation of the disease, and complicated the effective treatment of it. Illness can carry a moralistic burden that relates to how the illness is thought to spread or to whom it spreads. Sontag writes that, quote, any disease that is treated as a mystery and acutely enough feared will be felt to be morally, if not literally, contagious, end quote. One of the best examples of a culturally stigmatized illness is AIDS. The subject of an entire follow-up essay, AIDS has endured the castigation of political, religious, and cultural figures since its discovery, a stigma that reverberates to this day. From its discovery, AIDS has been linked to certain groups of individuals regardless of its ability to spread to anyone. 
Writing from 1994, Sontag claims, quote, the unsafe behavior that produces AIDS is judged to be more than just weakness. It is indulgence, delinquency, addictions to chemicals that are illegal and to sex regarded as deviant, end quote. The connection of AIDS to gay sex and IV drugs is still prevalent in Western society, even though there are many counterexamples. In countries like Botswana, Zimbabwe, and South Africa, this myth is easily dispelled, but in the West, the disease is still stigmatized. This stigma allowed politicians in the Reagan era to respond callously to the outbreak of the AIDS epidemic, choosing instead to moralize the issue and ignore the sufferers. Whether with AIDS or any other epidemic, there is always a desire to create an other that becomes the bearer of a disease. Jews were blamed for outbreaks of the bubonic plague in medieval Europe. European countries fiercely debated which foreign country was responsible for the syphilis raging through the continent, and Italian immigrants were blamed for a polio outbreak in 1916 New York City. Speaking of AIDS, Sontag writes that, quote, every feared epidemic disease, but especially those associated with sexual license, generates a preoccupying distinction between the disease's putative carriers, which usually just means the poor, and in this part of the world, people with darker skins, and those defined as, quote, the general population, end quote. It is the perceived right of the privileged to contend that they are free from any sickness, and it is the other that carries disease. AIDS is an example that stands directly in the face of that, and yet the idea that there is this untouched, pure population being attacked from outside by a foreign disease persists. It is important to note the idea of contamination and how diseases like HIV carry that stigma as well. Diseases that are chronic, and especially venereal diseases, carry with them the uncertainty of contagion and infection. Take HIV as an example. Here in 2020, we have PrEP, an antiviral drug that can lower HIV to undetectable levels. Given that the risk of transmission from sex or accidental contact with bodily fluids is negligible for an HIV-negative person, we should be unlearning the stigma around HIV and accepting that undetectable equals untransmissible. Yet to this day, there are restrictions around the donation of blood for men who have sex with men, and the news that someone is HIV positive can still provoke feelings of disgust from those around them. In the early days of the epidemic, an HIV diagnosis carried much more punitive measures, such as restrictions on travel and disqualifications for certain kinds of military service. And I'm only speaking of written rules, which say nothing to the extent of how a diagnosis could result in job loss, loss of friends, loss of family support, and in general inability to move on with life as it was before. Moralizing a disease doubles the suffering of those who are infected. There is both the burden of disease itself and the burden of societal notions about who they can be or what they can do. Not only do we close ourselves off to the understanding of those who have these diseases, we actively shun them for their othered status. So, with all this in mind... I'd like to take a shot at dissecting the current COVID epidemic using the tropes and judgments associated with these other grave illnesses. 
it's very clear to me that we have fallen prey to many of the same notions that haunted other diseases, especially at a political and societal level. Much of our public response to COVID has been around the idea of contagion and the effort to protect the population from the growing crowd of invisible, asymptomatic carriers. In the absence of widespread and repeatable testing, we've been forced to overlay the threat of infection onto all of our social interactions. While the evidence does seem to suggest that COVID is contagious in that early stage, the psychological impact of treating everyone as a potential spreader of disease is severe. On a communal level, we have struggled to come to terms with the data that suggests the majority of those infected are the Black and Latinx working class here in America. That same sort of othering that prompted the landed gentry's escape from the cities of Europe with TB has led to a widespread debate around city density and whether our increasingly urban lifestyle was safe. I've personally heard charges aimed at Asian, Black, and Latinx communities at different points in the pandemic, saying that they were the reason for the initial or continued spread of the virus. For the record, the infection rates among POC communities has far more to do with terrible working conditions and the inability to find affordable, safe housing for a rapidly growing section of the population than their inability to wear a mask or follow standard protocols. Class has never been more apparent in this country, and the intersection of race and class has a lot to do with who has counted as, quote, the general population, unquote, and who is the unsafe other. Beyond any of those factors, we as a population have moralized COVID to an incredible degree. We say people get COVID because they weren't distancing properly, because someone didn't wear a mask, because they saw a family or friends. Those who are able to thoroughly insulate themselves from the crisis turn around and pass judgment on those who are not, regardless of the intent of the infected. How many photos of beaches or public places have we seen captioned with a lament about the size of its crowds? How does that change when we view those crowds as part of a movement, whether it's anti-lockdown protests or racial justice protests? Every one of us has to consider the boundaries around disease risk, and collectively we all need to do our best to respect others' boundaries. Communally, however, we in inflict a secondary suffering when we express satisfaction or an I knew it at the infection of the socialite or the politically regressive. In our political discourse, the origins and spread of COVID have both been co-opted to serve a political end, with the spread of the phrase, the China virus, as a stand-in for COVID, as well as the assertion that financial aid for cities struck with COVID be invalidated based on their political leanings. Mask wearing became an external outlet for the fears around transmission and opinions on the state of the country. Dangerously, our very mechanisms for reliably tracking statistics on COVID were undermined in order to obfuscate the reality of the epidemic. Much like the AIDS epidemic, we are seeing our government pursue active denial of culpability or concern that is costing lives every day it goes on. Sontag contends that as diseases lose their mystery, it becomes harder to mythicize or use in a metaphorical context. 
The effective treatment for a disease and the understanding of its workings are the main building blocks of stamping out the myths and metaphors around illness. Some diseases, like TB, have been almost eliminated in advanced societies. Robbed of their power and mystery, they are no longer able to support a mythos around them, reduced to just a disease. Others, like cancer or AIDS, are not treatable enough or well understood by the general population to the point where stigma and stereotype can die down. Speaking of a future where cancer is much more treatable, Sontag writes, quote, At that time, perhaps nobody will want any longer to compare anything awful to cancer, since the interest of the metaphor is precisely that it refers to a disease so overlaid with mystification. Our view about cancer, and the metaphors we have imposed on it, are so much a vehicle for the large insufficiencies of this culture, for our shallow attitude toward death, for our anxieties about feeling, and for our justified fears of the increasingly violent course of history. The cancer metaphor will be made obsolete, I would predict, long before the problems it has reflected so vividly will be resolved. End quote. We as a global community have seen how the COVID crisis has reflected so vividly the insufficiencies of modern day culture, and the cost of those insufficiencies since the start of this crisis has been in lives. As we grow into that global community, though, we must be aware that all of our problems also become global. COVID certainly didn't stay in China for long before spreading around the world, much like the carbon emissions and waste that we generate here in the U.S. doesn't stay in the U.S. Sontag writes that, quote, The AIDS crisis is evidence of a world in which nothing important is regional, local, limited, in which everything that can circulate does, and every problem is or is destined to become worldwide, end quote. The COVID crisis is in so many ways indicative of the task of our era to survive the process of transforming into a global society and to fully take on stewardship of the global situation of life on Earth. COVID-19 will not be the last epidemic and is in many ways a mild disease compared to something like Spanish flu or the bubonic plague. It is, however, more than enough to remind us in our smaller and smaller world that we are all responsible for the health and well-being of that world. And we all need to do our part. So please, wear a mask, stay home, and remember, COVID, like all diseases, is just a disease. It has already taken so much, we shouldn't harm anyone further with myths and morality. Hi, everyone. Thanks for listening to the show. If you want to keep up with the show, uh, hear about any new episode releases, and get some behind-the-scenes info about the process of creating the show, and hear more about the figures that I talk about, you can follow me on Instagram at starvingartpod. Thank you for listening, and I hope that you gather some strength and encouragement from the work that I'm doing. Talk to you soon.